uh, we're continuing our series here on the Gospel of Mark, where we get into this scenario where Jesus does more of his ministry, and as he's doing more of his ministry, he's becoming more and more challenged. People have questions. People, people have arguments. Why are you doing this, Jesus? And so in the thick of things, we now turn to chapter 2, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us. And as I do read it, if you're able, can you please stand for the reading of God's word? Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts a new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Amen. That's Rosarina, God's word. May he continue to bless, bless it for us. The grass withers and the flowers fall but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated, friends. So, according to CNBC, the happiest place or the happiest city to live in all of America is, guess what? Fremont, California. Number one. San Jose takes number two. Happiest city in America. You know, as a, as a person who's been living here for three months, I don't really see it. I can't really see it. This is not me being ungrateful for the uh, place that I live in. I think it's a wonderful place to live. There's a lot of places to hide, uh, good eating spots and all that. All this to just say, I don't understand it. How do they measure this level of happiness? Are you even happy? Maybe I should present that to you. Are you happy? And the thing is, I, I believe we're all living our lives to be happy. No one purposely tries to uh, set the goal of their lives to be miserable. We all want to be happy. And yet, for some reason, the Bible rarely mentions this word happiness. It's only mentioned like eight to ten times. But you know what the Bible mentions, the word that the Bible mentions a lot of? Joy. Rejoicing. Joy. Which might indicate for us that perhaps happiness is a little bit overrated and joy is the very thing that God longs to give to us, longs to give to his people. This passage is really about how God gives joy to us, how we can keep it in a world that always seems to drain and suck it away from us. We're going to look at three things in this passage. We're going to look at this idea of keeping fast. Secondly, we're going to look at keeping time. 
And last of all, we're going to look at what does it really mean to keep our joy. Let's look at the first part, keeping our fast. See, in this passage that as we have it, John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees, they were considered the religious influencers of their time, spiritual influencers. So if you wanted to live a spiritual life, you consulted with John the Baptist, or you'd look at the lives of the Pharisees. Whatever they did, you would do if you wanted to be spiritual. And so people start to wonder. They look at the lives of Jesus and his disciples, and they get concerned. And these are just random people. And they ask Jesus in verse 18 this question, or verse 18 and this, this question. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, they do not fast. This question coming from the tail end of the fact that Jesus and his disciples were at a party at Levi's house, feasting with them. Right? The, the, the photo ops don't look good here. Because if we were to compare it, it'd be like having a, a photo op of Mother Teresa feeding the homeless or the orphans compared to someone like Jack Black or Jack Harlow partying it up at the Super Bowl. Those are the two comparisons here. Why don't your, why don't your disciples fast Jesus? Why don't you fast? See, the spectrum of why people fasted in the Old Testament varied. You, you would either fast out of grief, you'd fast out of penance, you'd fast out of seeking guidance. There's plenty of reasons why people fasted in the Old Testament. And yet fasting itself was not a unique experience just to Israel alone. Even the four nations had this practice of fasting. They would fast to have greater religious experiences in the, in the temple of their pagan gods. And sometimes they would fast to ward off demons. You see, the only time in the Old Testament that fasting is ever commanded is on the Day of Atonement, which happens one time out of the year. One time out of the year, there's a call to fast. But everything else, there's no mention of it. Why are, there, why are they so intent? Why are, these, uh, why are the, uh, the Pharisees so intent on fasting? You see, in the first century of Rome, there existed this proverbial saying, fasting like a Jew. Fasting like a Jew. That's how prevalent this practice was. And so this question that is brought up in verse 18 is essentially just simply asking Jesus, why aren't you being as spiritual? Why aren't you, you're, you and your disciples being as spiritual as the Pharisees? Which I gotta ask, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it really mean for us to be spiritual? My friends go to concerts, and as they go to these concerts, they describe it as having a spiritual experience because the music was so good and there was something transcendent about the whole experience. There's people who are fanatics of Star Wars, and when they visit Disneyland for the first time, they see the Millennium Falcon and Chewbacca and all that. I've never been, but this is what I'm imagining. They say it's a spiritual awakening for them. I think this word spiritual, one meaning is a sense of transcendence, an unexplainable experience that you have. 
that's euphoric. And another way that we understand spirituality is rigorous devotion to God, one that requires self-denial. Both these descriptions of what spirituality are are deficient at best. They're deficient at best. Because if God is truly God, then we have to believe that he is the most spiritual being ever. And he doesn't try to transcend the human experience, but rather, the Bible says, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Yet at the same time, Jesus does not pass off masochism as just uh, purposely hurting ourselves as this way of spiritual enlightenment. There's enough pain in our lives to be shared by everyone. You don't have to seek it out. True spirituality is connected in Jesus' message in chapter 1, verse 15. That the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. To which the Apostle Paul later says in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's the key to spirituality. Can you have joy in God? Can you have joy in God? There is true spirituality. Remember, fasting isn't even a command. It was just a practice, a spiritual practice. No one is condemning this spiritual practice, but when the practice starts to perceive the purpose, that's when joy begins to get lost. Kathy used to work at a floral shop, and this random older gentleman stopped by. He must have been well into his 60s. And as my wife is preparing the bouquet of flowers for him, she asks, oh, what's the special occasion? And the man responds, it's, it's for my wife's birthday. And Kathy's eyes uh, brighten up, and she says, oh, that's such a wonderful thing. That's so lovely of you. That's so nice. And the man responds, I'm just getting these to keep her quiet. Because if I don't do something for her, she's just going to yell at me. Is that romance to you guys? Is that romantic? Or has someone placed practice before purpose and lost the joy itself? You can do spiritual things. You can keep the fast of your life all you want. But it's not the same thing as having joy. For Jesus to keep your joy is to keep. Uh, for Jesus to keep your joy is to keep fast. You only understand this joy as you understand time. Which brings us to the second point here: keeping time. Here's how Jesus responds to the question in verse 18, verse 19: Can the wedding guests, which literally translates as the sons of the wedding hall, basically groomsmen? referring to Jesus' disciples. Can the groomsmen fast while the bridegroom, which is Jesus, is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. They cannot fast. Jesus is saying to be with him is celebratory. And nothing else expresses celebration like a wedding. This is what Jesus is getting at. 
To be close, to be in a closer relationship with him is like to be celebratory. But sometimes we have this process called wedding planning and it is incredibly stressful. You gotta figure out all the color schemes to match. You gotta, you gotta taste, taste all the food to make sure it's good enough. There's venues that you have to visit, price tags that you have to budget. And then at the end of it all, there's the seating arrangements where you have to make sure that enemies aren't placed at the same table. And as all of this stress piles up, the last thing you need to hear is for your groomsmen to come up to you and ask you, are you ready to sign your life away? You might be joking, not very helpful. No, what you need is a groomsman, a good groomsman at least, will come up to you and tell you, hey, take a deep breath. Everything's going to be fine. At the end of the day, you're getting married to the love of your life. That's all that matters. That's a good groomsman. It's not a time to panic, it's a time to rejoice. Is this not God's intention for us in our lives? That his heart for us is to be lived in joy. Yet for some reason, I feel like a lot of us are a little suspicious about this. I have a buddy of mine. He's telling me about his family trip to Yosemite. He shows me pictures of how beautiful the trees are. And then he, sees, uh, he shows me the night sky of all the stars. Just so bright. So many of them. And he was just gazing out with his wife, sitting, in the, uh, sitting outside, just being mesmerized, mesmerized by the beauty of what God had created. It's good. Good surroundings, good company. Life is good. But then he tells me, something bad's going to happen. I know it. Something bad's going to happen. Life's too good. The other shoe's going to drop. I feel like we function this way when it comes to our lives. Why would Jesus take away the misery of the guilt of our sins just for us to walk around, for us to walk around cautiously, waiting for something bad to happen? Why would he want that for us? Should we not be able to celebrate the little joys in our lives? I think it's important. I'm an avid believer. You should celebrate the joys that are presented to you in your lives. I'm reminded of this all the time as I watch my kids. They find joy in simply looking at monarch butterflies. They find joy in little pieces of rocks that they found on the floor. They seem so insignificant, but so profound in the way that they have joy. You know, this whole week it's been raining and finally the rain has ceased. And on a Thursday I went out to play, or not to play, but to go out for some fresh air while my kids played with the neighborhood kids in the cul-de-sac. And as we're in the cul-de-sac, we saw, lo and behold, a rainbow, a full arc. Have you seen the full arc? I only see like half of it. And this one was a full arc right behind our house. And all the kids looked up and they said, wow, a rainbow. But there's one kid who said, rainbows aren't real. Those are just light refractions. That's Fremont Unified School District. <laughs> Finest of education, happiest place, right? Does the world need to recognize light reflections? Or does it need to understand that there is rainbows? Why can't we just behold the fact that there is something beautiful, something that we can simply pause to step back at, ponder, be in awe of, be joyful about? 
Jesus says that there is a time for rejoicing to take that time to understand when it is time to rejoice. He's calling us to rejoice, not to just move on to the next thing, to busy ourselves, or to have a cautious heart, when's the next bad thing going to happen? But to behold and appreciate the moments of God's gracious hands at work. There's a time for joy, because God makes room for times of sorrow. Verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Notice that Jesus doesn't dismiss this practice of fasting. Rather, he places it in the context of grief, of sorrow. Everyone seems to be convincing us how to become happier. But no one convinces us of how to grieve well in this life. How to grieve well. And so in a place like the Bay, I believe we get clogged up with grief. We busy ourselves with our work, just buy more things, just try to have more experiences, be happy, right? That's the goal. But no one tells you how to process your grief. Kathy pointed out to me my lack of enthusiasm for things, and it became a real problem in my life. Everything to me was just okay. Like every question she asked, how's the food? It's okay. How's the kids? It's okay. How's life? It's okay. And I realized, she asked me, why, do you, why are you like this? Basically, In a loving way, in a loving way. Why are you like this? I think it's because I stifle my joy. Because if I can do that, then the sorrows won't hit me as hard. And I read Brene Brown. She wrote that if you numb yourself with the darkness, you also numb yourself with the light. So I try to appreciate the little joys in life. Take a minute to savor the sight of rainbows, not light refractions, rainbows. Realizing you don't have to protect yourself from grief, as if you can, as if you do, because as if, if you do grieve, as if you'll lose your joy. Because that's never the case. God keeps our joy in the sorrow. Which brings us to our last point here. How can God keep our joy here? In the last two verses, Jesus introduces two proverbial sayings. He says, you don't sew a new patch, patches on old garments. And then second of all, he says, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. And commentators have noted how random this is. And they say that Jesus is criticizing the old religious system of the Pharisees and the new teaching that Jesus brings can't be contained in such a system. I, I, I am convinced by their interpretation, but I think it's, it's not the entire point here. These aren't just random proverbial sayings for me that Jesus somehow just tagged along. I think these metaphors are connected to the wedding. Because in the wedding, the bride and groom wore special garments, wedding garments, while the guests who were invited also wore dressed specifically for the occasion. Wine is a staple for the wedding feast, right? A party without food or drinks, that's just called a meeting. And meetings are all boring. That's not fun. What Jesus is getting at is that there is nothing in this world that will be satisfy us to satisfy our longing. The world is not fit for our God desires. The world is not fit for the desires we have for God. 
it is not enough. Jesus is thinking of the ultimate wedding at a greater venue. When God fully redeems his people and he wipes away everything bad, he wipes away everything bad with the new heavens and new earth. In this world, pain does not fit into this. Grief is not supposed to fit into this. Our ultimate longing and ultimate desire is for a wedding vow to be made, for God to simply say to us, I will be good to you. I will be good to you, no matter what. But there's grief that makes us wonder because it doesn't fit with what God promises. I feel this especially as we hear the news and tragedy of this past week of Nashville, Tennessee. Six people died, senselessly. Three of them being kids. No older than the kids at New Life Fremont. Three children. These kids were just going to school. Kids shouldn't fit in coffins. That's what I know for sure. There shouldn't be coffins made for kids. This shouldn't be normal. And yet I ask myself, as I hear about the tragedy, where does this fit in with God? How does this fit? There's nothing fitting about it. I don't really have a good answer for this. But I do have a good response. It's the grief freely. One minister put it this way, that to grieve takes great faith because once you allow yourself to grieve, you don't really know how you'll turn out at the end of it. So it takes faith to actually grieve. And yet as you grieve, the death, we have griefs of different kinds, the death of loved ones, relationships that are lost, Time that is taken away, losing a pet. In all these ways, grief makes you wonder, where does all this fit in with God? Where does this all fit in with God? But yet we can freely grieve knowing that God promises to be on the other side of it. Jesus says that there will be a time to fast when in verse 20 he says, when the bridegroom is taken away, if fasting is a practice of denying ourselves, then is not life one of fasting? Is not our whole lives based on fasting? That we live in a world where we feel like children shouldn't have to die, but we're denied of this. We live in a world, we're denied of a world where we should all be able to belong regardless of race, gender, whatever. But it's a struggle. We're denied of a world where we can, where we no longer have to weep. Fasting is one of life. Yet Jesus promises, the one thing I will not deny you is my joy. I will not deny you this. Jesus says the bridegroom is taken, will be taken away. In that specific language, Jesus is thinking about his death. 
then the metaphor of his wedding, he's thinking about his funeral. Why does Jesus think this way? Why does Jesus think about his death? It's because he knew in order to present us before God at the ultimate wedding venue of the new heavens and new earth, someone would have to be denied for the sins of the world. Jesus is taken away at the cross to bear the world's grief of sin, of an eternal death, also that God can make a vow to you, a solemn vow, I will be good to you, even to the grave. I will be good to you, even to the grave. And the Lord's Supper that as we have it today is a reminder that Jesus promises to make a fast. That as he hands out the bread and wine to his disciples, he tells them in Luke 22, 8, this is his specific words, For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He is fasting for you. He is fasting for you. Longing to sit with you at the feast of the wedding. And he is saving the good wine for you. The happiest place cannot be a location. It is a relationship of a God who simply welcomes you into his loving arms, who looks at you with tender eyes, who knows everything that you've been through, and simply says, I'm so glad you made it. Have a seat. Break bread with me and rejoice. Can you pray with me? Father God, life is filled with many things that are sad, and we don't always process it the best of ways. But as we come to you today, will we be reminded you are good, you will be good, and you always will be good towards us. Jesus, thank you for what you have done on the cross for us, reminding us that you have prepared the banqueting feast on our behalf. We pray for Nashville, we pray especially for the church, that mourns and worships. And we pray that your ministerial hands would be at work, really bringing healing for your people. And bring some healing for us as well. For if you give us this joy, then who can truly take this away from us? May we rejoice even in the sorrows of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.